I want to I start by sharing a little bit with you about my spiritual upbringing. Um, there's a point to this. It'll, it'll, it'll go with the message tonight. So I grew up in a household. I've, I've told Jay a little bit about this, but I grew up in a household with a mother who was a United Methodist, uh, a father who was an Assemblies of God Pentecostal. So I had this sort of strangely diverse spiritual upbringing, which consisted like some Sundays I would be, you know, sitting through like a 10 or 15 minute homily at the Methodist church. Um, and then other Sundays I would sit through like a three or four hour, you know, full on healing service with all things Pentecostal, right? Um, so then when I became an adult and I, I, I dove into the, the scriptures uh, for myself and I, you know, divided God's word, um, I, I chose to become a Baptist and, and I stand here before you tonight as a Baptist pastor. And there's, there's a point to all this. I like to joke about my experience because it's so different than that which many of my um, co-pastors have experienced in their life. Um, most of them were, were born into Baptist families. They've been Baptist their entire life. Um, and so they look at me as this sort of black sheep of the staff, right? I'm, I'm that guy. But the truth is, I value that experience, and I'll tell you why. The Lord was forming me into that which he would have me to be. He was forming me into that which he would have me to be. And I, and I haven't always been a pastor, by the way. I, I spent 25 years in a completely different career while God was preparing me to stand before you in this moment today. And I have to be honest with you when I say this, like for that entire 25 years, there was something inside me that kept telling me that I wasn't there yet. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was something more God had in store for my life. And for reasons that were unapparent to me, I just had to wait. I had to wait. And I didn't know what I was waiting for. I didn't know how long I would have to wait. And least of all, I didn't know why God would have me wait for so long when it seemed like nothing was really changing. I didn't know why God would give me this feeling of being unfulfilled, even though I was in what many would consider to be a very fulfilling career. I was a law enforcement officer for 25 years. But then never seemed to show me what it was exactly that was going to scratch that itch, if you will. And I just couldn't shake it. Now, I can look back now and see that if God had revealed those things to me, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I wasn't ready. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. Probably I would have just screwed it up if he would have revealed that to me then. Um, I had lots of plans for my life. None of them included being a Baptist preacher. I can assure you. I promise. But God knew. God knew. And he knew that the only way that he could get me to where he wanted me to be was to give me just enough light in my path to take one more step. God had plans for my life, but included in those plans was the fact that I was going to just have to wait. That was part of the plan. That was part of the plan. And waiting is a really hard thing for us, right? Um, I mean, no, no person who lives in the West in the, in the 21st century w wants to wait on anything. I mean, why, why would you? Why would you want to wait on anything? Um, everything is available at our fingertips. 
with only the push of a few buttons. Um, you know, if you want to know what the weather's going to be tomorrow, no problem. Pull it up on the weather app. Turns out it's going to rain, but you don't have an umbrella. No problem. Order one on Amazon. It'll be here before the rain starts, right? Um, I order stuff on Amazon and it gets there, you know, before I get in bed that night. Um, you know, want to know the history of the Ottoman Empire or maybe who the president of Ethiopia is? No problem. You don't have to go to a library anymore to look that stuff up. Um, just pull out the computer in your pocket and Google it, right? Um, she is 73, by the way, the president of Ethiopia. Her name is uh, Sally Work. She's on the Forbes list of the 100 most powerful women in the world. Um, now, I know this because I Googled it. I know it because I Googled it. That's the only reason I know that, right? So the point is, we live in this world where mostly anything we want is available to us in an instant, right? So the idea of waiting on anything just seems so unnecessary. It seems so unnecessary. So the question then is, why in the world would the Apostle Paul tell us in Galatians 5.22 that one of the character traits of the fruit of the Spirit is patience? Why would he say that? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is patience. So you probably noticed this giant clock I have next to me. Um, it's not so I won't go over my time limit, although that's, you know, maybe a thing I should watch too. Um, this is the clock from, I, we had to be very careful with this. This is the clock from above my mantle, by the way. My wife thought it was crazy when I was walking out of the house carrying it, you know. And she was like, what are you doing with the clock? I said, I oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> it's all for Jesus. It's all for Jesus. Um, so I want you to take a good hard look at the clock. And I want you to see what time it's indicating right now. Just kind of make a mental note of that. Just take a look at that. We're going we're gonna to come back to that later. So if you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we're going to look at this passage together. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And I know you've been working your way through this text over the last several weeks, so I just want to quickly refresh um, on, on what, what the verses actually say, and then I'm going to take you to the Old Testament, and I'm going to tell you a story that will get us to the heart of what Paul is trying to tell us here in the New Testament. And by the way, there, there's an important side point to be made there, that I, and I didn't want this to get past us. The reason I like to, I often teach this way. I, I like to teach the New Testament through the Old Testament, okay? And the reason for that is we, we can never unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Um, the entire New Testament was written by men who were simply trying to explain what Jesus was doing and had done through the lens of their Judaism, okay? And, and that was all based upon what they knew as the Scriptures and what we call the Old Testament. None of the New Testament writers knew at the time that they were writing what we would one day call the Bible. None of them knew that. They were simply writing to one another, um, trying to explain how Jesus was fulfilling the Jewish prophecies. So if we miss that when we read the New Testament, then we, we, we miss a really important part of the story. We have to always look back through that Old Testament lens, and so I like to do that. So let's look at Galatians 5, and 23, and it reads this. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Okay? Now, sorry, stop the timer here so I make sure I stay on the key. So just to refresh your memory, and I'll be brief here because I, I, I don't want to repeat something you've already heard about this passage, but the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about here 
is not a list of actions that we're being commanded to perform. It's not a list of rules that we're being told we have to follow. Paul has already addressed that issue earlier in this passage, earlier in the letter, when he, when he tells the readers, he says, walk by the Spirit and don't obey the desires of the flesh. And he says that's because the law condemns those desires of the flesh. Okay? And, and, and this, these desires of the flesh that Paul is talking about, that's, that's our sinful nature. And he says that the, the law addresses those things, but once we know Jesus, we're released from that law. And as a result, the, the fruit of the Spirit isn't something that we have to go try to accomplish. It's something that's going to be given to us by God. It's, a, it, it's something that will naturally exhibit this idea of, of patience and these other character traits will, will naturally exhibit them because the, the Spirit of the Holy God now lives within us. So Paul isn't saying here, be patient. He's saying that once you know Jesus, patience will become such a natural part of your personality and it will be that way in a, in a, in a manner that you were previously incapable of possessing it. And that's an important distinction to make because if we're not careful, we can start thinking that, well, if, if I just do these things, if I, if I try to be patient or if I try to be more loving, that I can somehow earn my way to Jesus. And we've totally missed the point. That's what we do. We've totally missed the point. So now that we've looked at this New Testament passage, I want to take you to an Old Testament story. It's a story of a boy named Joseph. Joseph was a 17-year-old shepherd who lived and worked outside a city named Shechem. This was sometime between 2000 and 1600 B.C. It's during the Bronze Age, okay? And Shechem was the capital of what was then known as Canaan and what we would roughly identify now as the West Bank, okay? And, and, I, and I point that out because I want to show you that these are real people in a real place in a real time in history, okay? This isn't... This isn't a fable. So Joseph was the 11th of 12 brothers, and for reasons that we don't necessarily understand, Scripture tells us that Joseph's dad, Jacob, loved Joseph more than he loved Joseph's 11 other brothers. That kind of goes against our Western sensibilities. It made more sense to an Old Testament audience, but it is what it is. That's what we're told. Jacob, Joseph's dad, loved Joseph more than his other brothers. And so Joseph would sometimes get special treatment. And in essence, he got to stay at the house while his brothers all got sent out to work in the fields. And then occasionally, Joseph's dad would send him out to spy on his brothers to make sure they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And then if Joseph brought back a bad report, dad would be mad at the brothers. Joseph was always, he was always good. So you, you might imagine that Joseph's brothers weren't too fond of that arrangement, right? I wouldn't be either. They weren't too fond of that. So they finally come up with this plan to rid themselves of their pesky younger brother. He wasn't the youngest, but he was 11 of 12. And so they, they first planned to kill him, but turns out they're all kind of cowards. And they feel bad about it. And so they, they end up doing the next best thing is they sell him off as a slave to some Arab traders some merchants, and then they resell Joseph to this guy named Potiphar, who's a commander for Pharaoh in the Egyptian army. 
And that's some 400 miles away from where Joseph belongs in Shechem. And he gets sent there. So now I want to stop here for a minute, and I just want to kind of soak in what's, what, what's happening in the story. So we got a 17-year-old kid who's really done nothing more than what his dad asked him to do. And his reward for that is to being, being sold into slavery, sold off by his own brothers, his own blood, and then taken to a foreign country as a slave. And then it, the, the story gets worse. It doesn't get any better. The story gets worse. Um, Joseph is doing what he's told to do as a slave in Egypt. He gets accused of a crime he didn't commit. He ends up in an Egyptian prison, which, by the way, were famous for prisons. Terrible place to be. Egyptian prison wasn't what somewhere where they sent people to be rehabilitated. It's where they sent you to chain you to the wall and not feed you and let you die. So if you know this story, then you know that the Joseph I'm talking about is the Joseph, son of Israel, who's described in the 37th chapter of Genesis. And he would eventually get out of prison after interpreting some dreams for Pharaoh. It's another sermon for another night, but it's a great story. And he would rise to become second in command of all of Egypt, answering only to the king himself. And that king was Pharaoh Sesosterus I. We have records of his kingship. Um, just like we do for many of the other Egyptian pharaohs, we know when he ruled, and again, real people, real place, real time in history. And so it was this position and authority that Joseph attained that he would then use to save not only the people of Egypt, but the future nation of Israel as well, because what he would do is, that one of the dreams that Pharaoh had was that um, there was going to be some, some good years of harvest followed by some years of famine, and Joseph was able to interpret that through the, through the Holy Spirit. And so Pharaoh allows him to take over the, 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 the ongoings of the country, and Joseph stockpiles grain during the good harvest years and then sells it back to the people during the years of famine. So not only does he save the population, but he makes the king really rich through all of this. And he gets really, really famous. But but here's the interesting thing about the story, which seems on its face to be this, you know, I don't know, happy rags to riches story. But it was 13 years from the time Joseph was sold into slavery until the day that he would ascend the steps and sit at the right hand of Pharaoh. And so here's the point for that. God had a plan for Joseph from the time he was very young, but Joseph certainly didn't know what that was, and he had to wait. He had to wait. And, you know, waiting is hard. I would say it's sometimes hard, but it's most all the times hard. And I'm not talking about, you know, waiting for dinner because you're hungry and it ain't ready yet. That's hard too. But I'm talking about, you know, the kind of waiting where you endure unimaginable hardship for no reason other than the fact that God is building character in you before he can bestow greatness on you. Because Joseph couldn't have become the man that he became if he hadn't been the boy that he was. So have you ever felt like you've just been waiting on God forever and nothing's happening? 
And before you say, you know, we're tempted to say, well, I mean, 13 years really isn't that long. You know, 13 years. How long is it? So if you're 20 years old today, some of you in this room inevitably are about 20. 13 years ago, you were seven, right? That's a lifetime. That is a lifetime. So have you ever felt like you've been waiting your whole life and God just isn't speaking? I have. I have. I told you the story. I waited 25 years for God to reveal to me what he had in store for me and why I felt so uneasy about where I was. I worked an entire career knowing every day that even if I was where God wanted me in that moment, it wasn't where he intended for me to be eventually, but I only ever had enough light for one more step. So, have you been there? Or are you there? Because while the waiting is is hard, I want you to hear me when I say this, the waiting that God has for us is always worth it. It's always worth it. Because here's the thing about God. The reason he grants us patience is because he's a patient God. He's a patient God. Psalm 103.8 tells us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And as people made in his image, he bestows that character upon us when we follow him. A patient God makes us a patient people. And so then the question is, well, well, why? I mean, isn't that the question we always want answered? Why? Why do we need to wait? Why why is patience so important to a loving God? And, and, And I think I can show you why. So now I want to take you to another Old Testament story. I want to take you to the book of 1 Samuel, to chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to skip a few verses and read verses 10 through 13. So you can just follow along with me. 1 and then 10 through 13. 1 Samuel chapter 16. It says this. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. After Jesse presented seven sons to him, Samuel Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Depending on your translation, it might say he was ready. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Okay, so put that in your pocket for a minute. Put that in your pocket and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to continue the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5 say this. 
all the tribes of Israel came to David, same David, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned 40 years. Okay, so we got the beginning of the story in 1 Samuel, the ending of the story, this part of the story in 2 Samuel. But I want to step back for a minute, and I want to fill you in on something that we could very easily miss here. In the first passage we read in 1 Samuel, there's a detail left out by the writer, and that's the fact that David was 16 years old when Samuel anointed him to be king. 16 years old. So let's do some simple math here. If David was 16 when he was anointed to be king, and then in 2 Samuel it tells us he was 30 years old when he took the throne, that means there was 14 years in between the time that David is anointed king and he becomes king. So what do you think he's doing during all that time? Like, what, what do you do? You think he walked around and told everybody, like, hey, you better show some respect because you're looking at the next king here. You're looking at the next king. Hardly, hardly. He would have been executed for treason, for sedition. Israel had a, had a king named Saul, and people didn't go around threatening Saul's kingship without losing something, right? Like their head. This is all happening, by the way, around 1000 B.C. That's the time. So this is in the middle of the Iron Age. We're right in the heart of the Iron Age when this is going on. So, you know, think like Game of Thrones, and you can kind of get the picture of what it would look like with the warring kings and what Saul would have maybe done to some 16-year-old kid who says, eh, I'm the next king. So think about that weight. Think about that weight. What do you do? And now we, we know some of the events that happened in David's life in that time of waiting because the Bible tells us he, he becomes a, this is a, this is a weird factoid, right? He becomes a harp player in King Saul's court. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, he fights and kills a, a giant warrior named Goliath. Super cool. Um, and, but in the midst of that, Saul tries to kill him twice. Not very cool. And then he eventually ends up in exile, running for his life from the same king who he had played the harp for. Totally, totally, totally uncool. And this is the same guy. Remember, this is David. This is the guy who Samuel anointed as king and said, God appointed you to be the king. So, you know, I, I just, I, I can't help but think, like, what is he thinking during this time? And, and here's what I think. I think David, being a human like us, I think he probably got pretty downhearted about all this. In fact, we, we know he did because we have some of the Psalms that he wrote where he's pretty darn sad about all this because he's like, man, Samuel anointed me king, and here I am. I'm, I'm running for my life in, in exile. But, but let me ask you this. Do you think when David was 16 that he was ready to be king over Israel and Judah? 
No way, man. No way. David was a was a, he was a boy. He knew like how to move sheep from one field to the next, but he knew nothing about running a nation, specifically the nation that would become the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. And so God had to build, take time and build character in him before he could move him from the pasture to the palace. And that waiting time for David, think about that, it stunk. It stunk. It was hard. There was often no light at the end of the tunnel for David. He, he didn't know how he was going to get out of the pickle he was in when he's hiding in caves because Saul is trying to kill him. He didn't know how he would become king when he didn't know how he was going to make it through the night. But the waiting had purpose, and the waiting would be worth it. It would be worth it. So, do you feel like you've been waiting in exile? Man, I have. I've been there. I've been there. You know, do you feel like there's no light at the end of your tunnel? Because I want to encourage you tonight, if that's you, to persevere and know that God has a plan to work in your life for your good and to His glory if you follow Him. If you'll reach out, take hold of what God has to offer, which is Jesus, and trust Him as the Savior, the Redeemer, the Director of your life. So if we, if we were to go back to the book of Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but if we were to go back to the book of Genesis, we read about this guy named Abraham. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this all together for you and show you how this all fits. And God told Abraham that he was going to make him the father of many nations. But the problem was Abraham was 75 and he didn't have any kids. And he's like, how can I be the father of nations when I ain't the father of nobody? And God says to Abraham, I want you to wait. I want you to wait. And he waited for 25 years. 25 years. And when he was 100 years old, his wife Sarah gave birth to Isaac, to their first child, Isaac. And Isaac would father a boy named Jacob, and God would come to Jacob and would rename him Israel. And it's this Israel, this Jacob, who would father 12 sons, who became the leaders of the 12 tribes or nations of Israel, including Joseph, who we've been talking about, and who became second in command to the leader of the known world and saved the Israelites from extinction due to the famine that God knew was coming. And it was another of Jacob's sons, Judah, who, because he survived that famine, would father a son named Perez, who would father a son named Hezron, who would father a son named Ram, who would father a son named Jesse, who would father a son named David, who would be anointed king of Israel when he was 16 years old by a prophet named Samuel. So do you see how God's plan works in the waiting? God couldn't give a son to Abraham when he was 75. He couldn't. He needed to wait until Abraham was 100 so that Joseph would be born at the exact moment in history to save the Israelite people. And so David would be born 
at the exact moment in history to be king. And it was through the line of David that another man named Joseph would be born some 1,000 years later. And Joseph would become engaged to a young girl named Mary. And she would conceive by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And at just the right time, Scripture tells us, at just the right time, Jesus would enter the world to save you, to save me, even while we were still sinners. And we, and we didn't even touch on the book of Isaiah, by the way. We could, we could do this all night long. We could jump back and forth you know, to these stories in the Old Testament. But he prophesied Jesus some 800 years before Jesus would be born. And God said, a Savior's coming, but you're going to have to wait. They waited 800 years. 400 of that was a time when God didn't even speak. They had to wait, but it was worth it. So I want you to look back at our clock here. If I remember right, I think in the time we've been standing here, the clock's moved from about here to about here. Now, if you were staring at that clock the whole time, I hope you weren't. But even if you were to stare at it, it's very difficult to, to see the minute hand move. And it's even harder to see the, the hour hand move. But in the short time that we've been here together, just going about our normal activities, right? The minute hand moved from, from there to there. And we didn't have to constantly worry about, you know, is, is the clock going to continue to click off minutes and hours? We can kind of just have faith in the clock as we go about our business, right? Time will pass, and the hands on the clock will continue to move without our help and whether or not we can see them moving. Now, I don't want to over-allegorize here. I want to be careful. But God works a lot like that, don't you think? God doesn't need our help. We can just trust that as we go about our business and seek His will, the hands of time are just going to keep moving. God's going to keep working. So let me ask you this. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Do you feel like you've been waiting forever? I'm a lot older than you guys, but 25 years is a long time. It's a long time. Are you waiting for purpose for your life? Maybe for direction? Maybe you are waiting to meet someone to be a spouse. Maybe you are waiting for a job. Maybe you're waiting to figure out what you should do here at this university. Maybe you're just simply waiting to hear God speak so that you'll know that He's real and He's actually interested in your life. So the waiting is hard. That waiting is hard. And I want you to see that this, this idea of patience that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 is the essence of what we call faith. That's why this is, that, this is how this all comes together. This is the essence of faith. Hebrews 11 says this about Abraham, the same Abraham we just talked about. He says, says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in a land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder 
is God. So listen to me. This, is, this might be the most important thing I'm going to tell you tonight. God may ask you to obey something today that he's not going to explain until later. Because he is building your character and he's making you into the man or woman that he intends for you to be. And if this is you, don't lose hope. If you feel like you've been waiting forever, don't lose hope. Because he isn't going to work things out on our timeline. We have evidence of that. He never has. That waiting can be hard, but that waiting is always worth it.